Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Chris Athens, and if you're not familiar with Chris, Chris is a mastering engineer who has worked in the industry for over 30 years. He formerly used to work out of Sony Music Studios and Sterling Sound. He's since founded his own company called Chris Athens Masters, and that's based out of Austin, Texas. Chris has mastered for some massive, massive names in the industry, and he has a big reputation in the hip-hop world where he's worked with artists like DJ Khaled, Drake, Mac Miller, Puff Daddy, but he's also worked on a lot of rock records as well, including bands like Coheed and Cambria, Architects, Of Mice and Men, Blink-182, Paris, and a whole bunch more there as well. And today's interview is... It's awesome. I, I just really, really enjoyed this episode. And I know I enjoy a lot of the episodes, but this one here just really stood out to me. Chris is a very smart guy. And in this episode, we talk a lot about this idea of creating traction with your career and the various ways that you can go about doing it. And Chris shares his story and the way he went about doing it. But he also kind of acknowledged that the way he did it isn't the way he would necessarily do it these days. And I think that that's really important to hear, right? There's a lot of, we're talking to someone who has lots of experience in this industry and has learned from a lot of mistakes and a lot of good things and bad things and all that kind of stuff throughout his career. So it's really interesting to hear that fresh perspective on what he would do today if he was getting started. And I know that that's important because many of you listeners are trying to get started. So hearing his experiences and all of the ups and downs throughout I think is going to be really revealing in terms of helping you learn what to do with your own careers and how to really create that traction. And so in this interview, we definitely get into all of that stuff. And he shares a lot of great advice about taking control of your own career and what to be doing if you're starting your own studio business and how to partner up with the right people to get momentum going really quickly. There are just so many amazing lessons that Chris shares here. And yeah, I was taking crazy, furious notes on my iPad listening to this interview. Um, but yeah, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. And then we also get into his mastering process. Obviously, with such a massive career in this industry, there's a lot to learn from him. And the fact that he's been able to work out of some of the biggest mastering studios in the world and has learned from some of the biggest mastering engineers as well, you know, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to learn a couple things or two, right? So in this interview, we definitely get into a lot about his process as well, and he gives you a lot of great things to consider if you're mastering your own tracks so that you can get the best results out of them. So with that said, let's just jump right into this interview because there is so much here to cover, and I know you're going to love it. Chris Athens, thank you so much for being on the Mastery Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going good. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you and your background in the industry and all the cool stuff that you've been up to, can you give us a little of that history of who you are, what you do, and some of the projects you've worked on? Yeah, first of all, if you've never heard of me, shame on you. Of course, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. Um, my, my kids frequently ask me if I'm famous, and they do it in a way that's like really genuinely hopeful. <laughs> so I enjoy crushing their dreams and telling them that, no, I'm not famous at all. But there's a few people who know I am in a specific industry. And that's good enough for me. 
Fair. <laughs> um, what do you want to start with? Uh, the, you know how my career started, or yeah, like how, how did you ultimately like get started with production to begin with? Like, what inspired you? Were you a musician to start with, or how that how that happen? Yes, I was a uh, marginal musician. That's how it all started. It, it all started with like with most of us i guess with a love of music in general i was kind of as a kid i'm old enough that we didn't have a billion video games and streaming this and that and and youtube and all that you know i grew up in an era where like it was very common to put on a record and just listen to it and that was an activity for some of us you know and for some of us it really resonated and was an emotional experience and so i had an early love of music my parents were both my mother had a lovely voice but she wasn't a musician my dad was a drummer um and they both had pretty wide-ranging tastes they weren't super into pop music they liked a few things but that was good for me because they were into jazz and all kinds of other things that they played a lot and you know things that were popular too like carol king and the beatles and stuff like that but i grew up listening to a wide variety of, mu- of music i mean the first album that i ever became obsessed with was songs in the key of life by stevie wonder and i stole that from my father and he had that in his record collection and that very quickly found its way into mine um and that progressed into being a relatively undisciplined uh musician with very little talent but i still loved making music and i i did it often i was kind of obsessed with it and uh I had a a good friend as a kid who was a remarkable drummer. Um, And he and I both played uh, multiple instruments kind of poorly, but we liked recording ourselves. We started out in a band and hated playing with other people. And we ended up, because we covered all the instruments between us, we ended up getting into recording gear and doing a lot of recording and uh some of it was interesting none of it was incredibly good and we had a hard time finishing records so you know neither of us became rock stars but uh i never lost my desire to make records and be involved in that process and i was um selling musical instruments at a instrument store and I finally lost my mind like the 10,000th time I heard someone play Enter Sandman really, <laughs> really badly. And uh, I got, I found my way into working at Sony Music Studios in the tape library. It wasn't what I wanted, but I wanted to get the hell out of the store and be on my way. So it felt like that. And, and it was in a way took me about three and a half years to get out of the library and into engineering. And that opportunity was basically 
making tape copies on the night shift at Sony Music Studios. And uh, I was the kind of guy who said yes to everything and figured it out later. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of guys that I worked with there, guys and gals who were much more experienced than me. So when the assistant engineers would occasionally call and say, hey, man, I've got a project. Can you do it? They would all say no because they were busy making money and working and they didn't have time for that shit. I was somebody who was willing to say, yes, do it for free and do it at three o'clock in the morning. So I got a bunch of those gigs and some of those turned into actual work. Um, and eventually it dawned on the people who were managing the studio that I could do these things and they started sort of promoting me. I ended up on, um, on the day shift in a mastering room doing primarily reissue work, uh, because there was one guy at Sony, Vlada Meller, who was doing the lion's share of all the new release stuff. And, uh, I actually worked for him as an assistant briefly uh, during my tenure there at Sony. And uh, he taught me a lot, including how to cut vinyl. Uh, and that was where kind of where I got my start, one piece at a time. I, I'll tell you, I can tell you if you're, you're interested, the two or three projects that really got me on the path to being a professional mastering engineer doing more than just reissue work. Not that there's anything wrong with reissue work. It was valuable experience. The first major one was I did one of those records for an assistant um, in the mix rooms at Sony. Sony was a huge complex mix rooms, mastering rooms, video, etc. And uh, one of the assistants called me up and asked me if I would do him a favor. And I did it. And he loved it. Um, so about a month later, same guy calls me up and says, hey, man, I'm down here chilling with Jerry Murata. We're working on this record. We're recording for Will Lee, the bass player from The Tonight Show or whatever it was, David Letterman's thing. And uh, Jerry is, a, is the drummer, was the drummer for Peter Gabriel, and I was a huge fan. I had seen him in concert and all this other stuff. I said, hell yeah. And I went down and met with him. And it was pretty funny because he asked me, he said, oh, I'm, I need this record mastered. And we were going to send it to Bob Ludwig. And I was like, yeah, great. And he said, but uh, what have you done? And I said, in a moment of clarity, I was like, don't lie. So I didn't exaggerate or anything. I just said nothing you've ever heard of. And he laughed. <laughs> but I also said, but if you want me to take a shot at a few of these songs, I'll do it for you. And if you don't like them, no big deal. And if you do, maybe we'll work together. And he was like, sure, kid. And he handed me the tape and I did it for me, loved it. And I did many records with him. We're still great friends. And I occasionally do records that he produces or plays on. But that was a long time ago. That was like 28 years ago or something like that. And anyway, it took off from there, you know, and there were a couple of other things that happened. A few, um, 
few people that I did things for really liked it and and then brought me lots of work like Kurt, Kurt Yano, who uh, is a producer and musician who lives in New York City. Um, I did th- weird things for him like Phoebe Snow and these big blues guys and stuff. And, and uh, you know, it just kind of got from there. But the one of the biggest breaks was the way I got into hip hop, for instance, was um, Vlado. Vlado uh, was one of the busiest guys at Sony and I was working with him. I think he liked me a little bit or whatever. I was, he liked what I was doing. And one day uh, he was working with the guys from raucous records in New York city. And they were a very new company and very young and they didn't have a lot of money and the records weren't big and famous. So one day he just said, uh, you know, you want them kid. And I was like, yeah, sure. Cause I said yes to everything. Yep. And, uh, when I started working with Raucous, the guy who was the president of the company, Jared, I think his name was, he used to show up with the tape in his hand, like the president of the company. And they were primarily doing singles. And I did their first. I started working with them and they gave me everything pretty much that they were doing, including their first big kind of musical act that was not a compilation, which was this record called Black Star. Well, the, the group called themselves Black Star. It was most deaf and Talib Kweli who went on to great fame in that genre. And uh, I did that record and a bunch of other stuff and raucous records really blew up around that time. Um, and I was doing all those records. So I started getting phone calls from all kinds of other primarily urban music artists from around the world. And that kind of started it. That's amazing. I love that story because I think it, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who I know are afraid to take chances or or afraid to take on opportunities sometimes because they're just like, I'm not ready for it. I'm not cut out for it. And I think that that's such a paralyzing thing. So to hear your story where it's just like, just jump in, you know, take a chance and like, you know, it either works or it doesn't, but you at least got your shot. I think that's a, that's a big lesson. You know what, to be honest, I started relatively late and I was feeling the pressure of that, of that kind of late start. Everybody that I knew at Sony who I admired and wanted to be like, were about my age, maybe a little bit older, but they had 10 years of experience on me. And, you know, it wasn't until I got the job in the tape library and then I worked in the tape library for a few years and then I started at the bottom in the engineering department. So when I when I started, there was I had a sense for whatever reason of desperation. And it made me work really hard, too hard, as a matter of fact, because I burned the candle at both ends for many, many years. Uh, and that kind of thing is not good for your health. But um, I went at it like nobody's business. Didn't sleep much for about 20 years. Yeah. And uh, really, it was just that that kind of desperate effort to catch up 
that pushed me to do these kind of not risky things, but take chances. You know, I only really got burned when I was at Sony one time and it taught me a big lesson about preparedness. I was working on a record with somebody I'd never worked with before who had worked with some very credible mastering engineers. And I was one of the things I was using was an old digital Neve mastering console, which was great. It was really a really good tool, but it froze up in the middle of my session. And I absolutely could not figure out how to get it unfroze. And it kind of messed up my session big time. And the client was disappointed and probably a little turned off. And I was all flustered and whatever. And then the next day I came in, you know, kind of worn out and hang dog because it was really late at night when this happened. And uh, the guy whose room during the day it was, was there. And I was talking to him about it. And I told him what happened. And he walked over to it and the Neve console and he turned it off and then he turned it back on and it worked. <laughs> and I was like, God damn it. That is never going to happen to me again. So, so suffice it to say, I, I read a lot of manuals after that. Like I, I knew my gear really well. Yeah. Of course. And that never happened again. But that wasn't, you know, it was a good learning experience. Most of my other experiences with the chances I took were really good. And the big chance that I took, frankly, I was on the path to being, I guess, the next Vlado at Sony, for lack of a better way to describe it. Doing a lot of uh, new release stuff having my own room, you know, things were going very well there. But one of the people who used to book me there got a job at Sterling. And about a year later, she called me and said, do you want to be Tom Coyne's assistant? And I'm talking to her out of my mastering room. I'm a mastering engineer at Sony doing my thing, things are going well. And I just said, yes. <laughs> and uh, got my interview with Tom and Marat, the guy who was the president of the company. And they gave me a shot. I mean, it wasn't, it was a risk. It wasn't a huge risk. They were actually willing to pay me more than I was making at Sony to be Tom's assistant. Oh, wow. But, you know, there was an opportunity of just washing out, you know, like I wasn't good enough. So I quit my job at Sony and I went to Sterling and that was the biggest thing I'd ever done because I was exposed to the most successful mastering guys on, you know, on the planet really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that level of competition and that level of, um, access to all the, these big projects and people. And it really was the kerosene to my fire. And my career took off from there. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, I think, yeah, sometimes you do have to take those chances and things that maybe seem like maybe they're like a step down or something like that. You know, sometimes those are that 
that open door to what you're really destined to do or where you're supposed to be. So it was a hundred percent to step down. I mean, I went from doing my own thing and having a good time at Sony working a certain way. And I went to Sterling and all of a sudden these guys are kicking my ass. Like I'm working around their schedules, doing my, I still did my own mastering, but on the weekends and around the schedule when Tom wasn't there, cause I was working in his room. Um, they fired me as his assistant and hired me as a mastering engineer. And, uh, it was pretty funny because they said to me, we're going to give you just enough rope to hang yourself, <laughs> which is a pretty funny way of encouraging somebody to <laughs> do their best. But a year later, they gave me a contract for a huge raise after I had made them a ton of money in my first year. And, uh, you know, they gave me a contract and then they gave me my own room at Sterling. And there were people who were there before me who were angling for that room, but they didn't get it. I got it. Anyway, when they did that, when I signed the contract, I said to them, so how am I hanging? <laughs> and they kind of cracked up and were like, okay, okay. Um, but fortunately, I didn't screw up too badly in that first year. But I have to give a lot of credit to Tom Coyne because um, I learned a lot from watching Tom work, his work ethic, and his skill, um, and his ambition. And he also was very generous because at the time, he was like the uh, pretty much the busiest guy in America. Uh, I'd say Ted Jensen and maybe Bob Ludwig were close, but Tom was churning out. This was the era when Tom was doing things like Tribe Called Quest, Britney Spears, InSync, Backstreet Boys, like all this huge stuff. There were whole labels who just sent everything to him. So he was busy, busy, busy. And one of the things he would do is just be like, he would introduce me to his clients when they would do it. We'd do attended sessions and I'd be in and out of his room or directly helping and whatever. And he would say to him stuff like, you should use this guy. He's really good. He's better than me. And he would say that like kind of sincerely, you know, he knew who he was. And so he was very self-assured, mm -hmm. but he would literally say that to the clients and he meant it like he would be encouraging certain clients to work with me. And some of that was because he had too much work. Like he just couldn't do it all, but he liked making money. So he didn't want the clients going somewhere else. Of course. But he also liked my work. So, you know, like I ended up working with, um, bad boy records, for instance, because of Tom, he, I did Tom, gave me uh he used to do this quite a bit he gave me a um single that they sent him as a shootout for um i don't know i guess with some other mastering engineers they were trying to figure out who was going to do the first posthumous biggie record and they sent it to him 
And he was leaving on a Friday and he handed me the tape and he's like, I want you to do this over the weekend, but make it sound good because I'm trying to get the record. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I came in and I did this and uh, gave it to, and on Monday he came in. I think partially he was testing me, but um, Monday he came in and he listened to his version that he did, apparently. And then my version and he liked it. So anyway, he sent my version to bad boy and they loved it. Flash forward. They, uh, they're doing a session with him on the album now because he won the shootout. And I walk into his studio and he introduces me to the people in the room. And he says, uh, I overhear the client say to Tom, you know, we really loved what you did on the single. And Tom looked at them and was like, oh, I didn't do that. He did. And pointed at me. And I was like, gulp. Uh, <laughs> is that bad? Hi guys. Anyway, the guy, the guy was like, okay, cool. But later on that day, I'm walking in the hall of Sterling. The guy comes up to me and he goes, just do me a favor and listen, listen to the record later. Make sure everything's okay. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Like you're in the room with Tom. Yeah. It's going to be fine. <laughs> but um, from then on, Bad Boy booked me exclusively. I did everything they put out for eight years. Wow. Because of that moment and yeah. Tom's generosity. That's amazing. Yeah. It sounded like you, you, you surrounded yourself with the right people and you worked your ass off to prove your value. And because of that, people were willing to give you a shot. And I think that that's, uh, that's a big thing. Like, you know, some people, some people feel like they're entitled to it. I got to make a big shout out to Tom's booking manager at the time. Her name is La Rivers. And she was a very well-connected person and very, very charming. And like everybody loved her. And she gave me a shot at a few records that Tom was too busy to do. And fortunately, they came out well, and the client was really happy. So she learned really quickly to trust me. And she liked me personally. So she, as often as possible, would steer projects my way. And that had a huge effect on my, on my growth as well. Of course. Um, but I guess the the um, moral of that story is like, you know, be nice to the people you work with and obviously try to do a good job on everything so that you earn their trust. People are willing to risk their own reputations um, recommending you if they trust you. And there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth and Word of mouth from someone in a position who knows people is like the greatest leverage of all. Of course. Yeah, I love that. That's a great lesson. Well, there, there was something you touched on a little bit earlier that I think is is maybe an important thing to talk about for people who are trying to get into the industry. And you were talking about how you were basically pushing yourself like real hard for like those those early years and working crazy hours and not getting much sleep and, you know, getting yourself to the point of burnout and sickness and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that like, that there's, there's something to be said about that, you know, and, and you commented that it wasn't a healthy way to, to go about doing it. And I know that like, 
work-life balance is definitely one of those things that I feel like in the music industry, it's it's a hard thing. Like, you know, it's not like an office job. You come home every night at like at five o'clock, you check out or whatever. Like music industry is very demanding. And so I'm curious to know, like, as far as work-life balance goes, did you did you feel like you had any at that point in your life? Did you, did you, did you care? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> Apologies to the 10-year-olds out there, but not a fucking bit of it. Yeah. Um, I burnt the candle at both ends for a long time, drove myself into the ground, uh, and in all honesty, it's a double-edged sword, but it was instrumental in my getting where I wanted to go when I wanted to go there. Yep. Um, you know, I felt like that, that feeling only got worse when I went to Sterling because there are other assistants that work there who all the Sterling was building a new fancy facility in New York, multi-million dollar, nicest mastering studio in the world. And it was opening soon when I got my job there. Um, so two things were going to happen. There were two mastering engineers that were going down to Sterling first because there were going to be two rooms done while the rest was being finished. And one of those rooms was going to go to one of the vacant rooms at the old Sterling was going to go to Chris Garinger, who had just joined the company around the time I, I was, I showed up a little bit before him, but shortly after Chris joined the company, he was going to get one of those rooms. And then there was going to be one more Greg Calby's room. And, uh, there were two other guys who had been there longer than me and they both wanted that room. And so my hustle at Sterling was in part due to the fact that I felt like there was the clock ticking. And if I proved myself, maybe they would want me in that room. So that worked out. But then it kept going because as they were finishing out the new Sterling, there was one room unaccounted for by all the other big mastering engineers that were already at Sterling. And I wanted that room. So I broke my ass at that point even harder because I had to prove to the guys who were very jaded because they were used to people who were billing a million dollars a year and doing the biggest records in the world. They wanted like a certain level of achievement out of that room, a certain level of billing and, and what have you. So I broke my ass so they would give me that room when they closed the old Sterling and moved everybody down there. And that's what happened. Yeah. On the other hand, and so, you know, that kind of effort, that kind of determination, that kind of work can be advantageous to your career. There's no way around that. But there's, it's your responsibility, I think, if you're smart, to handle the other aspects of your life in an intelligent way. And I did not do that. So 
you know, I feel like looking back, I feel like I wish someone had given me the advice that I needed to sleep more regular hours and more be outside during the day when the sun is shining, um, not eat crappy. Like I used to do this thing where I didn't eat all day. I just drank coffee. And then at night I'd be famished and I'd get some delivery shit at Sterling and eat something really unhealthy before I went to bed at midnight. Not that I ever went to bed at midnight, but like eating at midnight. I used to sleep on the couch at Sterling probably three days a week um, because I was just, I worked 18 hours a day. I once did a, a, a record session, attended session for 36 hours. Wow. I did an Erica Badu record with like her whole band was sleeping in my lounge and on the floor of my studio. I had a lot of people sleep in my studio, <laughs> as a matter of fact, while I'm working. DJ Khaled, Fred Hammond, the gospel singer, used to fall asleep on my couch every time he came to a session. Lots of other people, too. And that it's a really unhealthy way to live and not sustainable for the long, long run. Fortunately mm -hmm. for me, I'm really hard to kill. But I worked at it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I tried to kill myself doing work. And I got lucky that i didn't actually die but um and i'm not kidding when i say die like i've had a couple of minor strokes i beat the shit out of my kidneys uh high blood pressure all that kind of stuff lyme disease which is like not totally related to uh mastering but it also made me exhausted and i worked right through that so do you think that like looking back at it i mean the way you're talking about it it kind of sounds like to some degree, you couldn't have done it any other way. Maybe. Do you think you could have done it differently? That's what I thought. That, that, that's what I felt. So looking back at that, you just, you just said that's what, you, that's what you felt, at least in the moment. But maybe now, in hindsight, you're looking back at it. Do you feel like you could have done it any differently? Or for, like people, that are, do, for people that are like trying to get into this industry now, like, do they need to be committing to doing the same thing as well? Or Here's the thing. I didn't give any thought while I was doing that kind of work style i didn't give any thought to uh the other side of it i thought i was tough and unkillable and apparently i was pretty tough but i thought i could work through every problem and the truth is that there are more intelligent ways i could have run my career where I, I would have had to work hard to get to the same place, but I think not as hard if I had been smarter about certain things. I'll give you an example. I'm a relatively terrible networker. And I know this because I know some friends from the industry who have become good friends who are phenomenal networkers, natural, non-like, icky, you know, like, charismatic, smart networkers. Some of them have been my networkers, like people who have introduced me to people using their networking skills and charisma. And um, I'm not a great networker because I know what that looks like, and it ain't me. Um, 
I'm not the worst because I'm a reasonably nice guy. And, you know, people like me when they hang out with me or whatever, but I'm not one of those guys who can go drum up new business by putting myself out there. You know what I mean? And, um, sort of, uh, networking more intelligently, uh, and with more effort. And I never did that. And I'm assuming part of that is because it felt salesy or salesmany, and I was too, a combination of too arrogant and too um, shy, maybe, to put myself out there like that. Uh, fortunately, word of mouth is very powerful. Um, but if I had it to do all over again, I would focus a small amount of my energy on networking and even, although it's uh, a dirty word, marketing. And it's something I think about a lot and still to this day, don't do any. My business is 100% word of mouth. I don't even have a good website. 10 years ago, I built a website that looked like it was 10 years old the day I built it. <laughs> and it's the same damn website that I had then, I have now. And yeah. it sucks. Um, but I need to fix that. Yeah. But there are people that I know in the business who are very good marketers and do things in an intelligent way that creates the possibility of more work for them. And I've seen them, not just in my business, but in my business, there are some who are very talented at marketing themselves and their, their company or their studio. That's a, a more leveraged way of doing the same thing I did, which was just because I believe you can overcome every weakness with repetition, so to speak, or, uh, you know, at bats, if you will, um, workload. And that's what I did. I kind of made up from my knack, mat, knack of natural ability to market and network uh, with just overdoing it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's almost like um, it was almost like borrowed borrowed clientele versus like creating your own to some degree, right? Like if you had done all the marketing and all that stuff yourself, you could have maybe brought those people in right from the get-go as yours, whereas other people, you were kind of, you took the route of like impressing other people and letting them pass off people to you to some degree. And that that's how that built. Um, and I think that you, you, you mentioned a couple things there that I think are really important to, to emphasize, which is that like, yeah, word of mouth is a very, very powerful thing, but it has to start from somewhere, you know, and you can't, just say like, I'm opening up a studio today. Word of mouth, come, 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 hire me as an engineer. You know, like, you know, that doesn't happen where people just start knocking on your door. You have to start somewhere to get that snowball rolling. So, I mean, you had the clientele. You had some people like you, you were working at other studios, so people were passing off that work, and and that created those relationships, which then formed new relationships and all that kind of stuff. That's how that snowball seemed to work. Well, that's an interesting point because I get asked relatively frequently. Um, how, by people who are 
in the earlier stages of their career, beginners or intermediates, you know, how can they be find success in this business? And, you know, honestly, I have no idea. I mean, if you asked me, I mean, I have some ideas, but I don't have any experience. If you asked me how to be successful in this business starting 28 years ago, I would know exactly what to tell you to do. And it would include get hired doing anything at a large, busy, reputable studio and do anything you have to do to get that job intern work for free empty ashtrays make tea whatever anything you know show up shut up and listen and eventually you're going to make friends with people they're going to want you in the room one thing leads to another and the next thing you know Somebody calls in sick and you're mixing the next Rolling Stones record and you're rich and famous. And that's how it works. It's just apply those simple principles over time. But the question of like starting out now and achieving success, the industry has changed so much. When I started, there were essentially what a dozen mastering engineers doing almost all of the big records in the world literally two guys in london three guys in la 10 guys in new york and when i say guys i mean women as well but people and that's it the entire in industry flowed through those mastering engineers and tom coin once said to me you know, the door hit you in the ass on the way in. Like, you're the last one, buddy. <laughs> you know, that has, that, I mean, I think that is very illustrative of the, the role that luck plays in making these things happen. And yeah, yeah, there are a million ways to increase the possibility of luck. But you know, I was born in the right place at the right time in the right city with the right parents. And I took the right chances at the right time and did the right things. And, you know, a lot of years later and a ton of work, here I am making a <laughs> living in my underwear in my own studio. And uh, how to do that today, I have no clue. But I think a lot of what I was saying previously about networking and marketing is way more important now than it was when I started. Of course. I agree with that for sure. You could be, you could have a smidge of talent when I started and a shit ton of motivation and make it very big in this business. Mm -hmm. uh, if you got lucky and you were in the right place and, and you were willing to work really hard, but Hard work won't get you anywhere these days in a vacuum. And if you're someone just starting out and your idea of work of your studio environment is 
a room in your house uh and you know even if you sink some money into it and whatever and you're not planning on doing any attended sessions or who would attend with you anyway you know if nobody knows who you are how the hell are you going to get over that first hump don't ask me man i don't know i didn't start like that i mean i basically i put myself in the right place and the work got shoved in my face but i think you are right i think the the networking side of it is huge the marketing side of it is huge and it's like you know to, you, you kind of have to put yourself in the position of like the people that own sterling or whatever you know it's like these people that own these big studios the reason why they got clientele is because they were the networkers. They were the ones yeah. that were marketing, right? And then, and then the word of mouth snowball starts because of that as they bring in clients, right? So it is, it is that you have to kind of sometimes take on uh, an appreciation for the skills of like networking and marketing that might not be what you ultimately desire to do, but it's it's a means to an end, and and it's it's the thing that gets the snowball going. So um, at the very least, you need to think about it a lot and understand it and if it's really not your bag spend money on it one of the best things you can do is throw money at a problem intelligently like find someone who is good at that stuff and pay them as much as you can to do it for you because you need to get traction in order to get a ball rolling you know, you can do a lot with a little if you get lucky and you do a good job. But you've got to get attention somehow, mm -hmm. you know, and then eventually you can get the ball rolling. And if you're just terrible at networking, which is a mistake or terrible at marketing, which is a mistake, you could still make it happen, you know, but you've got to get the ball rolling. And yeah, I love that. Those are difficult decisions. It's hard when you don't have any money, you're not making any money to, and everything costs money in the business. And like, you're looking at, should I buy this gear? Should I buy that gear? And that's the fun stuff, even though it's expensive. That's the aspirational stuff. Very few people aspire to go hire a marketing consultant <laughs> and give them a lot of money to do something that's just kind of vaporware and it's not a shiny new tube you know compressor yeah but you're either paying with it you're paying you're paying for it either in money or time so you know if you're not good at something and you're just dragging your feet on it and you're never getting that traction then you've just wasted so much time so you know sometimes like like you said it is good to just like throw some money at the problem in consider it an investment and yeah. like find somebody who can actually get that ball rolling for you faster and then you know you get started you know, you're, otherwise you can concentrate your energy on doing the things you're good at which is another lesson that i learned about 10 years ago or so maybe even more but about 10 or 11 years i started my own thing this studio in my house working for myself and what have you and i was doing everything i was doing my own booking my own billing i was my own assistant what have you and i was once again, went back to doing 14 hour days, 15 hour days and driving myself nuts. My wife finally got sick of it because I kept talking about finding an assistant and a booking manager. 
And she uh, she actually put she put an ad in Craigslist, which I thought was totally ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, you don't know the business. You don't know anything. And uh, you're not going to find somebody good on Craigslist. But I got all these responses. And I set them up so I could interview for my assistant uh, one after the other at this coffee shop down the street. And I had a whole day of interviewing these people. And uh, the last guy that showed up, my last appointment, uh, was a winner. And I was like, holy shit. Somebody saw this on Craigslist, answered, (laughs) and he actually knows a thing or two. You know, like this reasonably intelligent guy who had gone to a music production school and learned Pro Tools and all this other stuff. And he was just smart, you know, like talking to him was a breeze. And I thought to myself, okay, so I hired that guy. And then I hired and I hired him before I felt like I could afford him. This is the point I was trying to make Mm -hmm. because that's kind of scary. Like one of the things I think you should do after you get the initial ball rolling in your business is to stop doing the things that are not part of your core competency. If what you do best is master records and what people are showing up for and paying for is you mastering their record, stop doing all that other shit right now. You got to stop doing it before you have to stop doing it. Before the work is overwhelming and before you're falling behind schedule and not doing your best work and getting stressed out and not sleeping and, you know, becoming an awful person to be around. You have to do it before then. Take the one of the risks you have to take is offloading all non-crucial aspects of your business to someone trustworthy who you can You can leverage their time. And that is something I've worked very hard on for the last 10 years. I have two assistants and a booking manager, and my booking manager is also an assistant. He's a qualified uh, audio guy, and he worked for me at Sterling. And uh, I was able to talk him into. joining me so my my workforce is distributed i got one guy here in austin one guy in nashville and my booking manager is in um denver my booking manager does obviously my booking scheduling billing follow-up emails he's capable of answering some technical questions uh And I have my assistants for setting up my sessions and then delivering my masters and uh, other various things that I don't want to do. And there's very, so once you train a good assistant, for instance, 
I don't even do stuff that I'm okay with doing, like sequencing records, like putting an album together in order and the spaces and stuff, because my guys are experienced enough that they can do that with feel and, you know, where I think, oh, that's what I would do. And as a result, uh, we work very, very efficiently. And I'm able to get a lot done. And not only that, I, what I get done is better quality because I'm not spending any mental energy on things I don't need to be doing. I don't need to be labeling songs and putting in ISRC codes and running off DDB, DDPs and QCing stuff and all of those things, even assembling records or what have you, all that stuff they do for me. So each one of those guys I hired before I felt I really not could, I could, but needed them, you know, mm-hmm. and they grew, we grew together into this machine. And so now that's what my, I actually work less now. I do more work now and I work less than I ever have. Um, because what I do is focused on the one thing that people are showing up for, which is to get me to master their records for whatever reason. <laughs> I love, I love that, man. No, that's such a, such a powerful lesson. And, uh, yeah, definitely like, you got the uh, the ball going in my head. Like I've got so many ideas of like things that I I know I need to offload that I've been thinking about forever as well. So um, you know it is it's very reassuring to hear that, and uh, I totally agree with you. I think that you know we all have our we all get into this because we feel like we have our strengths and we know the things that light us up and that you know get us excited about it. And often when you're doing your own thing and you, you realize that like there are all these other divisions of your business that you need to master. And it, it takes away that enjoyment of like yep. focusing on what you really love. So um, yeah, I think that's a really good lesson to, to bring up in this. Um, man, this has been, I, I've, I've loved learning about your process and your way of thinking about all of this. Um, before we wrap up the, the conversation, I'd, I'd love to just quickly dive into some, some of your mastering process a little bit to just, you know, get a, get a little bit of an understanding of some of the stuff you do. Um, when I told you, you I was going to ramble. No, it's all good. It, it, this man, I, I, I could, we could turn this into like a whole long conversation for just, just on this one topic alone. You know, um, I've had a lot of coffee. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, when it comes to like actually getting started with your projects, then uh, I know that you said now you have assistants that kind of take care of some some parts of that. Um, but like, what's your mindset going into a new project? Like, where do you start? How do you start? Like. Maybe what are you starting from if you have assistants that are already prepping some of that stuff for you? I guess that's interesting because it, it it varies. If I if I'm if I'm doing a new project for an old client, sometimes I will refer to old notes and go back and listen to the previous project to remind myself what it is they liked at the time. Um I don't lock myself into those things because my goal is to respond to what they give me, but um, it is pretty informative. And sometimes listen, it jogs my memory about like things that they said to me or things they really liked or things that weren't important. For instance, if one of my clients 
sends me a note like, sounds good, but whoa, it's a little hot. You know, I'll be like, oh, shit, you don't want it blasted like everybody else. Okay. And uh, that's good to know because I'd rather do that. It's mm-hmm. just sometimes I make the wrong assumption, you know? And uh, other than that, if it's something brand new or someone I've never worked with, I just listen. The first thing I do is just listen to whatever it is that they gave me. And the first level of my evaluation is like, does this suck? Do I need to tell them to redo it or ask them nicely to redo it? Or ask them nicely to hire a real mix engineer? And... um Assuming that's not the case, uh, I usually, at the same time, while I'm listening to the project, I'm making mental notes and sometimes I write down things that just pop into my head. Um, and I'll some if it's an album, I'll bounce around uh, between like soft and loud parts and the various songs just to get a sense of like where it is holistically, like where I think they wanted to go with it. Mm -hmm. And then um, one of the magical things about working in a nonlinear fashion, uh, which is like the, uh, one of the most amazing things about working digital is that uh, it used to be a very linear process. Like when you were, mastering an entire record yet every song was on frequently was on like a individual tape which needed to be loaded onto the tape machine rewound sometimes and queued up sometimes the tape deck would need to be addressed you know cleaning the heads or whatever there's long breaks Mm -hmm. and a long time getting to the point where you're actually working on something and listening understanding the sound of an entire project or working on a record was pretty laborious because you'd get three or four songs into an album and hit on something or hear a new song and be like, holy shit, that's the best mix I've heard so far. And that's the best mastering I've done so far. And now the other stuff sounds like crap. And you got to go back and fix those songs and whatever. One of the nice things about you know, modern non-sequential work uh, or non-linear is uh, being able to bounce around and getting a broader sense of something immediately or as you work. Anyway, I'll just frequently, if I hear it and to me, the mix sounds pretty good or great or whatever, I just start working. Um, I try to be as instinctive as possible and i work i work very fast and working fast is not because i'm careless or in a rush to get done with the thing it's i decided a long time ago that there were several advantages to working quickly beyond getting done faster and those advantages to my mind were that one of the disadvantages of listening in a broad context to something you've spent months writing and recording and then if you're the mix engineer hours to days mixing or whatever is that you lose 
a little bit of that instinctive perspective, or it's easy to, mm-hmm. um, because your brain starts to interpolate things in a way where, like, for instance, you know, ask any experienced mix engineer if they've ever run off a mix after a couple of hours and realized they had one of the tracks muted accidentally and they didn't notice it and the reason for that is that like your brain plays tricks on you it just like will say hey yeah the tambourine's still there you know mix sounds great and then you're like what the hell there's no tambourine it's like when people leave their plugins bypassed but they think it's making a difference (laughs) yes i've done that too that was another thing that kind of convinced me of this is like i'll never forget i was working with an early client of mine and it was late at night. We had been at it all day long. We were doing a big project and we were trying to dial in this EQ. And he was somebody that I respected who I let touch my gear because he liked to play with stuff and I like to step back and just listen. And he was playing with the EQ and cranking it up. And he's like, this or this, this or this. And I'm like, just can't just can't hear it anymore what's going on you know and like i think that one's better we would a b stuff and then eventually we realized that we had the eq and bypass and we weren't doing anything and i was like okay session's over i'll see you tomorrow that was it like we just we were just like laughed like okay you know, your mind plays tricks on you after a while and you lose. One of my goals has always been to be the objective party in a subjective world. And music is very subjective. Creating objectivity is very difficult. And one of the ways you do that is your lack of familiarity with the project. You can be objective only so long and only through so many plays of listening to something and the more objectivity you lose the um smaller your perspective and i think that early on i realized that i'm at my best when i'm just reacting and i'm not thinking too much so I kind of trained myself over the years to work very quickly and make decisions really quickly. They're not always 100% the best. And of course, the best is a moving target in a subjective world. But um, that's how I work fast. So when you say that that you're a fast worker, like how long does it typically take you to master a song? The length of the song. Amazing. That's fast. It's, I mean, usually it's 10 seconds, but there are some songs that'll throw you a curveball. Like I can listen to, honestly, the soft part of the song and the chorus, and I know what I want to do. What helps that is the quality of work I get is relatively high because I've built up my business over the years and I have clients that send me, most of my clients are pretty serious. Mm -hmm. I still get shitty mixes now and then, but it was all shitty mixes when I started. 
And those are much more challenging and they require a different mindset and a different set of tools to try and extract, assuming you can't go back and fix the mix, to try and extract something much more usable out of whatever you've got. And, you know, so it takes a lot more time, a lot more experimentation, and it gets tougher the longer you do it because you start losing perspective and not knowing if you're making an improvement or just making a change. And to me, that's the most crucial thing is I don't want to just change stuff for the sake of changing it or making something loud and hoping to sneak it by people because it's just a little louder. I like to make a positive change if one is kind of required or Mm -hmm. would be an advantage. So the way I do that is by working very quickly. So my reactions to what I'm hearing is very instinctive and I just go for it. And if you want to know technically what my process is like, both Broad stroke EQ, for instance, and surgical EQ, for instance, are valid tools. But I use broad stroke EQ much more often for a couple of important reasons. One is that I find that broad stroke EQ approach preserves the balances uh, that were intended by the artist and the mixer more efficiently or more carefully than surgical does. Surgical has other problems. It's also broad stroke is also more natural sounding, mm-hmm. inherently um, more natural. Surgical EQ I use to fix problems. Um but there's always a compromise. And what you have to decide when you're doing things kind of surgically is like, is the medicine worth more than the illness? Like if I do this and it affects the snare, but it fixes the vocal a little, is it worth it? That's the compromise. Mm -hmm. And those things are always a matter of taste. And taste is something that anybody who's a mastering engineer has to have more than anything else. Um, And it's kind of a nebulous thing, but I think it's true that like your taste is fundamental because what, what we do is really very, very simple engineering wise. It's not technically complicated, um, but small changes at the last stage have a powerful effect on the project. So your taste, like deciding what not to do is as important as what to do. Yep. Absolutely. I love that. I think that's a a really good point to bring up there. Um, Well, I do use both techniques, but yeah, yeah, no, but more sparingly on the surgical EQ side. Well, it's true. That, that's a good thing to, to bring up because, I, yeah, some people, I know some people think of mastering as like just correcting mistakes and, you know, thinking that it's a lot of surgical stuff because of that. And then there's other people who view correcting as like the broad musical sense of things and in, it, more enhancement, I guess you could say. Right. Um, so there's a time and place for both of those for sure. Yeah. And like I said, the caveat is like 
I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of very experienced mixers, people with tremendous talent, in some cases, much more than I have. And their shit sounds good. So I don't have to do a lot of surgical stuff because I'm not correcting a lot of things. I get to spend most of my day making enhancements to things that really don't need it. And, uh, you know, I do half a DB at 10K and everybody thinks I'm a genius because the song sounds great and it goes to number one and all that stuff. But the truth is, like, <laughs> it would have done exactly that if I hadn't put 10K at, you know, a half a DB at 10K. Yeah. Called it a day. But I'll take the Grammy. Thank you very much. <laughs> but that's also like, that's that says a lot about you and your objectivity of it all right because like some people would feel like they need to leave their mark on a mix and go more heavy-handed because then it like makes it sound like they did more to it you know but i think that that says a lot about the 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 attention to detail that you that you put into everything because half a db some people might not even notice that but to, to you you're noticing how big of a difference that makes and also how how you shouldn't mess with the mix if it sounded good. So yeah, I think that's a really good sign of a mastering engineer. I mean, that's part of the discernment aspect of this. The taste aspect is knowing what not to do and having the discipline to not do it and not being afraid that the client won't be like, Hey, it doesn't sound any different than my mix or what have you. Cause I mean, that's a good thing. If it doesn't sound any different than their mix and you're good at what you do, it didn't need anything. Yeah. You know, and your job at that point is simply to top it and tail it, make sure it sounds the way it's supposed to sound, and like, you know, just do this and send it out into the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I think your better clients will also appreciate that because a lot of them know their shit sounds good. Yeah. They don't want someone to undo all their hard work. Right. And or just like piss all over something because you want to like affect it somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really to me just a waste of time. Um yeah. anyway, yeah, that's that's the process, man. It's something I think about a lot. Well, I mean, one thing that I've always found really amazing about your masters, and it makes sense. I mean, you work on a lot of hip hop, and low end is obviously such a massive component to all that kind of stuff. But even with your rock mixes that you do too, like I've always felt the the, the low end of your tracks always sounds really big, but also very clean, very polished. And so I, I was curious to to learn more about your process as far as achieving that big low end, and you know, not getting it to sound too like overdone or farty or whatever on a mix, you know, like I, what's your, what's your secret sauce to getting polished low end? Not telling you. <laughs> um, All right, done. <laughs> no, to be, to be honest, I, I don't know. What I do know is that I love low end. And I think that's a huge aspect or maybe even reason why the low end on my stuff tends to sound good. I mean, it's the first and foremost, it's because of the talented mix engineers that I work with that get it right. But it's also because I love it. And I guess because I love it, I'm kind of focused on it. Mm-hmm. And makes sense. because I'm focused on it, I'm, you know, doing a good job, I think, of 
not messing it up, but enhancing it when I can or preserving what's there while all the other things are, are happening as well. Not, I'm not sure. I don't do anything secret when it comes to low end or any part of the mastering process. I don't, I don't have any secret mm-hmm. techniques or anything like that. It's just choices. Yeah. And, we, and on that topic of like the broad stroke versus surgical stuff, when it comes to your low end, do you find that you tend to do one more than the other? Is it still broad stroke there? It is. I mean, there are occasions where I filter some sub frequencies in order to not bother the downstream, not to load down the uh, downstream devices most of those songs will be played on. Um, I do occasionally get mixes with, as you might imagine, tons of bottom end. And sometimes that bottom end extends very low in kind of a non-musical way. And um, because the mixers are mixing in a place where they can't hear it, it's not being played back on the speakers or the, the room acoustics are not great or what have you, or they're just been smoking a lot of weed all day. And, you know, it's, it's just a ton of <laughs> bottom end because, because it's so much fun to listen on the 18 inch. Yeah subwoofers in the studio and just crank it up and everybody's getting high and having fun. And then I end up with a mix that has like a <laughs> shit ton of low ended 12 Hertz. But, um, I will frequently play with where the filter starts and the shape of the filter and how much it's cutting out and play with the balance of what I think is going to be audible low end and what i think for most people is going to be felt low end for people who listen in jeeps or big car speakers or systems with subwoofers and then stuff that i think nobody's going to hear and so i'll play with that until i feel like it's either enhancing the low end or it's not making the low end feel or sound weaker, but at the same time, opening up a little headroom and, uh, uh, you know, not bogging down subwoofers with non-musical low end. That makes sense. So I'm assuming you're mastering with subwoofers to, to obviously hear a lot of that stuff as well, right? Yes. Yeah. I have very, very big subwoofers. Yeah. I would figure you would have to. <laughs> they are gigantic. Yeah, now you're bragging about them, but like, what? Uh, how big are they? What are they? <laughs> they have three drivers, and they're enormous. They're made by Dyna Audio, and they, I believe, they were custom. The C4s are something that Dyna Audio put out, but I have not seen a lot of the subwoofers that I have out on the marketplace. Except maybe the guy at NRG in um, LA might have a room with the C4s and the uh, my subwoofers. Mine were actually made for Aerosmith. 
And I know the guy at Pro Audio Design who did their install. And he, I'm not sure why Aerosmith didn't keep them, but he had this system at his, at his, um, standard AES. And, uh, I had already been using the C4s with little single driver subs at Sterling and I loved them. And so I went to AES and I saw my guy and I saw this rig and I was like, holy shit. He played it for me and I was blown away. And so I bought them. Amazing. Love it. <laughs> right on. Well, last question I have for you to sum all of the stuff up um, at the end of the day, ultimately what makes a great mastered mix in your opinion? One that is approved by the client. Great answer. <laughs> I mean that with utter sincerity because it's my belief that you cannot master records for the public or the listening public. That's nice to say that you do, but it's, I feel it's nearly impossible to do. People listen in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons. And you can't compensate as a mastering engineer in your nice room with your nice speakers and all that stuff. You can't compensate or hope to translate in every listening environment. So what, in principle, what our job is, I believe what the job is to do is to, um, what I'm, what I do is a value proposition for my clients. They don't need me. Most of them, especially the big ones that do big records, they actually literally don't need me at all. They could put out their records the way they are and still sell and still have a billion streams. You know, um, what I'm giving them is a value proposition. Do they like? what I did to their record more than where they had it. And if they do, then they like my work and they're going to put it out that way. And if they don't, they don't need me at all. But my job is to make the artist happy. And the mixer is also the artist, the artist as a group. Mm -hmm. My job is to make them happy. And one of the illustrations of that, that I like that Ted Jensen is probably tired of hearing about is the album by uh, um, Metallica death magnetic, right? Was that, was it, it was called anyway, it was the one that was famously like distorted and oh, say everybody, anger. everybody hated the way it sounded and blah, blah, blah. It's funny because I was with Ted the day he, one of the days he was working on that record. And he came out of his room and I was in the kitchen at Sterling. And he said to me, uh, you want to hear something? And Ted is not a man of a million words. So when Ted comes out of his room, the chief engineer is Sterling sound. And he says, you want to hear something? You pretty much say, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> so that's what I said. Yeah, of course I do. We went into his room and. I sat in his chair and he hit play on his computer 
And all of a sudden on the scope was this triangle of death that comes up when you, uh, something's just distorting everywhere. And I'm listening to it and I'm like, holy shit. And I turn around and I look at him and he goes, I'm fucked. And I was like, you're fucked. And he, what he was playing me was <laughs> the mixes of Death Magnetic, and they were distorted. And here's the thing that I learned from that experience, was that Lars and uh, James had actually been to the studio to sessions with Ted several times. And Lars and James were already huge rock stars. They had already had out, I don't know how many records, 10? Nobody told them what to do. And they had a shit ton of experience as record makers. They had final approval, as most artists do. It's not a record label thing. Most of the time, it's the artist approving the record. Nothing ever comes out of a mastering studio and goes straight to streaming or the pressing plant. It's always approved. And they approve that stuff and they approve those mixes. And the mix engineer was in the same position as Ted was. Lars and James knew what they wanted. They got what they wanted from everybody in the chain, including Ted. And they approved the record. So if you didn't like the way that record sounded, tough shit. That was what Lars and James wanted. They wanted that record to sound exactly like that for whatever their reasons were at the time. And that's, that's their prerogative. It's their art. It's their record, you know? I love that. That's a great example of what you're saying. <laughs> it was a Ted's job was to make them happy. And that's exactly what he did. He worked on that record until those guys, until the guys in Metallica were like, we're done, we love it. And then that's how they put it out. And he knew he was going to get a ton of shit from like the listening public. He knew that was coming. That's why he said to me, I'm fucked. And we both had a good, like, sardonic laugh about it. <laughs> because sometimes you're just fucked, you know? And there are brilliant sounding records that you had very little to do with that you get credit for. And there are fucked up sounding records that you put out that you did a magnificent job on, but still sound fucked up. And some people are going to hate. But that's not your job to worry about people that like or dislike the stuff that you did in general. It's too, it's too much of a moving target. Your job is a value proposition. Do you give something of value to your clients and your clients are the artist? I love that. Yeah, man, that's a, a perfect place to wrap up. I, I think that that, uh, yeah, it's a perfect, perfect story of, you know, seeing that at the highest level of, of, you know, artists, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, dude, that, that that's a great story. I love that. Um, Chris, thank this you. This business humbles all of us. It, it totally does. Absolutely. And I think that throughout this whole conversation, there's a lot of that kind of uh, 
a lot of that humbleness to to what you're talking about here and like the lessons learned along the way and and I could tell that you've definitely put a lot of thought into you know your what what you do and why you do it the way you do and um it just speaks volumes to the the level of work that you actually do as well so um so thank Chris thank you th- thank you for for being on here I really appreciate it my pleasure so that was my interview with Chris Athens, and I really, really enjoyed that. I loved learning about his approach to the things he would do differently if he were getting started today. And I think that that idea of focusing on marketing and networking, that is something that a lot of people are very reluctant to jump into. You know, they think that it's like salesy and slimy and whatever. But it's like the truth is, if you want to be your own boss or if you want to have your own studio, you need to get people through the door. And that word of mouth snowball that we talked about, it doesn't just happen. If you build it, they won't come. They only come if you let them know that your studio exists, right? So you need to get good at that networking side of things. You need to get good at marketing yourself. And when you do that, it creates that base clientele that then can expand to new people and build referrals and this and that. So, you know, I love that he talked about all of that stuff in this episode. I think it's super important. And I, yeah, like I said, I know some people are very reluctant to do it, but those are also the people that are going to fall behind. So if you're trying to get your career really going and get that momentum going, you need to definitely double down on that kind of stuff like he talked about here. I also really enjoyed talking about his mastering process and learning more about that as well. And I really like what he said about the idea of preserving your objectivity and why it's so important to work fast and understanding the benefits of doing that and how it's not about cutting corners or any of that kind of stuff, but more so reacting to the music and creating that emotional response, which let's face it, that's what we want our listeners to have. So yeah, I really enjoyed that he talked about that as well. And I think that it's an important lesson for all of us who tend to get very overcritical with our music and we overanalyze everything. We listen to the songs a million times, but you know, there's something to be said for working fast and trusting your gut and not losing that objectivity by having heard your songs thousands of times. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed learning more about that. There was just so much that we could have talked about today and so many more questions that I had. So, you know, I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I would love to have him back. So if you guys want him to be back, let me know. And I would love to have him back and, and continue this conversation. Now, there was one thing that he mentioned during this episode that I think is an important lesson. And the lesson there was that great masters start with great mixes and that when you have great mixes, it makes the final product that much better. It makes it easier for a mastering engineer to get even better results. Whereas if you start with crappy mixes, a mastering engineer can only take it so far. So the lesson there is that you definitely need to be making great mixes. And if you're the type of person who is feeling like your mixes just aren't quite hitting the mark, or you're not even sure if your mixes are good or not, and you're just kind of, you've lost your objectivity, like we were talking about in the episode, if you are looking for help with your mixes to make sure that they reach the quality that they need to be so that you can confidently release your music and feel proud of them, if you're interested in getting one-on-one help throughout that process, then I would absolutely love to help you. And inside of my program, Amplitude, that's exactly what you get. Inside of that program, I work one-on-one with all my students to help make sure that you're getting the results you've always wanted. And I review your tracks, I give you feedback on them, and we work back and forth on them until they're sounding 
awesome. So if you're interested in getting that one-on-one feedback and support and learning the actionable steps needed to help elevate your mixes, then make sure to check out my program, Amplitude. If you visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, you can find out all the details there. And I'd love to hop on a call with you and learn more about your goals and make sure that I can truly help you. I only work with people in this program who I actually believe I can help if that's not you, then I will tell you not to work with me. But if I do think that I can help you, then we'll talk about working together inside of the program, and I'd love to show you what to expect inside of it and how I can ultimately help you out. So once again, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude to find out all the details on that. So that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to talk with you in the next one. Take care. Later. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.